0: I have shared with you before that about 35 miles from here lies the thriving, growing metropolis of Gretna, Virginia. And when I was a boy growing up, I grew up in the city of Richmond, but when I was a kid, we made frequent trips to what I called the country, which was Gretna, my Aunt uncle owned a, a big farm out from Gretna, the Norcott family. And I spent particularly a few weeks on the front part of the center, summer during planting season and a few weeks on the back side of the summer in harvesting there on that farm. And as far as I was concerned as a kid and as a teenager, that was the closest thing to heaven on earth was that farm in Gretna. Now that farm had a whole bunch of different fields. The field in front of it had... Uh, Soybean grown on it one year and then wheat the opposite year. The back field was tobacco. And then there was a field up on the front side where they grew primarily corn. And there were two fields in the back, one that they grew vegetables in, and another one that was primarily tomatoes. And so there was about four or five fields there were in operation on that farm. Now when you went to visit, I want to use the term visit. In the loosest sense of the word, when you went to visit, it was pretty much understood that if you were going to put your feet under the table and eat a meal there, that you were also going to be planting your feet in one of those fields during the daytime uh, to help out. Visiting did not mean you just sort of sat back and watched everybody work. Any of y'all know what that feeling is like. So you were going to carry on some responsibility on that farm. Now here was the key thing. You had five fields in operation. When you headed out the door, you better have listened carefully to what field you were supposed to be in. If you were supposed to be in this field over here, and you showed up in that field over there, there was not going to be a whole lot of excitement about it. Uh, if my cousins were supposed to be in the tobacco field and they decided to go hang out in the wheat field, my uncle was going to let them know in short order they better get back to the tobacco field. So you had to make sure you were in the right field. Now, the field that you went to also determined what kind of tools you took into the field, whether you needed to have a plow, whether you needed to have a hoe, whether you needed to have a, a you know pitchfork, whether you needed to have be working in... Combination uh, with a tractor, whatever. But the field you went into had to do with what kind of tool you took or what kind of farm equipment you worked with. The field that you went to also determined what kind of plants you were going to be dealing with. Was it tobacco? Was it wheat? Et cetera, et cetera. And it also determined who were you were going to be working with when you got in that field, whether it was going to be my uncle or my cousins, et cetera. Now, if you went out there and you didn't listen carefully, you'd end up in the wrong field with the wrong tools, doing the wrong thing with the wrong crop, and just end up in a big mess. And for a lot of us, isn't that the way we sort of go about the will of God? We're not really sure what field we're supposed to be in. We're not really sure what tools we're supposed to be using. We're not sure what people we're supposed to be working with. We're not sure sometimes what kind of crop we're hoping for. We're not sure who we're supposed to be hanging out with and and working with. And for the next few weeks, we're going to be unpacking the 12th chapter of the book of Romans because the 12th chapter of the book of Romans is all about discerning the will of God. How do we know what field we're supposed to be in in life? How do we know what kind of tools, what kind of spiritual gifts and abilities God has placed in our lives? How do we know that we're in the right field doing the right thing? How do we discern the will of God? So if you will turn with me to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 12, and as you turn there, let me give you the background to where we're going to be looking at in this chapter. The book of Romans is written to the Christians who were living at Rome. Rome, at the time that the Apostle Paul wrote this, literally ruled the known world of its day. And the city of Rome was the absolute center of the Roman Empire. emperor lived there, the Roman legions were based out of Rome, everything that happened in the empire emanated from Rome. And Christians were serving at all levels of the Roman government. And so Paul is writing to Christians who are in a very important place living in the city of Rome, serving in the various levels of the Roman government. Now the letter that he writes to them is different from most of the other letters that he writes. The first 11 chapters are heavy duty doctrine. And what he does is he lays out the mercies of God, how we come to those mercies, what the death of Jesus means and is all about why we need Jesus. He lays it out in very succinct, chapter-by-chapter, logical ways. In fact, the logic of the book of Romans, I don't know if this is still done or not, but years ago when I was in college, they told us that it was not unusual for law students to have to study the book of Romans because they looked at the logical arguments that Paul laid out to understand how to build and execute an argument. And so he lays out the mercies of God in the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans. In chapter 12, he begins to take what he's built on and move into the practical application to our lives. How do we take the mercies of God and begin to live those mercies out as we have experienced them? Romans chapter 12, we're going to look at verses 1 and 2 today. I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, what is acceptable, and what is perfect. And my sermon outline is containing your bulletin and invite you, if you would, to follow along. Now, if we're going to discern the will of God, if we're going to understand where God wants us to be and what God wants us to do, notice what Paul says we've got to do in order to know what is the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. Notice where he starts. He says, give your body to Jesus. Now, that's not where most of us would anticipate understanding God's will would start, that we got to give our body to Jesus. But Paul says if you want to know the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God, then the first thing he says there is present your body as a living sacrifice to the Lord. Now notice how he begins that in verse 1. He says, I want you to do this on the basis of the mercies of God. Because of the mercies of God. In other words, because Jesus loved you, died for you, rose again for you, is coming again for you, is empowered you by the Holy Spirit, when you take a look at all that He has done for you an inventory of what He has done, is doing, and is going to do, then on the basis of that, because of that, present your body to the Lord. Now, He's not asking us to do anything with our bodies that Jesus didn't do Himself. He left heaven, took on a human body, came to this earth, And He presented His body in service and ministry for three and a half years. And then when He went to the cross, He presented His body to the Lord as a sacrifice for us on the cross. And then presented His body for the resurrection power of God to literally explode in it and through it and rose again from the dead. So what He's asking us to do, Jesus has already done Himself. The Bible says we are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. Jesus died for your soul, but He also died for your body. He died for all of us. Now, this is where we get messed up with this whole business about what to do with our bodies with the Lord. We are very influenced in Western culture and in the church by Greek thought. That is wonderfully unbiblical, but nonetheless, it has made a tremendous impact on us. Because the Greeks had several ways of dealing with this body thing. First thing the Greeks would do is that in their thinking and philosophies, they would divide the body and the soul like the two had absolutely nothing to do with each other. And they considered the body to be earthly and germane to this earth and to have no value, etc. So it didn't really matter what you did with your body. Your body had so little worth that God could care less what you did with your body. It was all about the spirit. So they put all the emphasis on the spirit part of man and just sort of blew the whole body thing off. Platonic thought said the body just has no value. They were careful to separate the heart from the spirit, and all that mattered to the Greeks was what was going on with your heart or your spirit. Now, before we're too hard on the Greeks, we do the same thing. When we give invitations at the end of the service, what do we say to people? Come give your heart to Jesus. Ask Jesus to come into your heart. We don't ever say anything about the body. We just drag that along with you. Don't look too good anyway, all right? <laughs> that's, that's Greek thought. But that's not Bible thought. That's not God thought. I don't just bring my heart down the aisle. I bring my body down the aisle. My heart's got me. My spirit's got to be in something when it comes down the aisle. And so I'm giving all that I am to Jesus. And what Paul is saying here is present your body to the Lord. The body is the instrument of the soul. The soul has got to act out. And how does it act out? How does it live out? It lives out through our bodies. We can't separate one from the other. They go together. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, We will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to receive what we have done in our bodies. Paul is saying, when you, we stand before God in judgment, he's going to look at us and say, Well, you know, you really did all kinds of stuff with your body, you broke about every commandment there was to break, but I don't really care as long as your spirit was saved. He's going to look at us and say, what you did with your body and through your body, you've got to answer to me just as much as with your spirit, because your spirit acted its way out through your body. It's the instrument of the soul. Now notice what he goes on and he says, present your bodies to the Lord as a living sacrifice. The word sacrifice is an Old Testament concept, and the word there means to bring something near. Bring something near. It is the idea that as we take our bodies and present them to the Lord, we're coming close to the Lord. You see, folks, so many times we struggle with understanding the will of God, but if I'm taking my body and going out here and doing things with it that are breaking God's law, I'm never going to know the will of God. I'm never going to live out the will of God, hence I'm not going to be close to the Lord. On the other hand, if I'm using my body to honor Him and serve Him, that I am coming close to Him, I am coming near to Him. And the key, first key to knowing the will of God, discerning the will of God, is being close to Him. I can't know God's will if I'm not close to the Lord. If I'm close to Jesus, I'm going to know His will. If I'm Apart from him, I'm not going to know will. willing. What I do with my body has a lot to do with that. And notice what kind of sacrifice. He says a living sacrifice. Now, that was almost like a contradiction in terms because in those days, sacrifice was always associated. We take an animal, you slay the animal, you put it on the altar so the sacrifices are all dead. And he's saying here, I want you to present a living Sacrifice. Now, someone has observed that the tough thing about a living sacrifice is it's always crawling off the altar. But what does he mean here by living sacrifice? I think the first thing he's saying to us is this. Living carries the idea of energy. If you're alive, you got energy. And if you're dead, you don't have any energy. I mean, most of us do not go to a funeral home and look at a body in a casket and expect them to, you know, hop out of there and start dancing around the place. If they do, we're getting out of there as fast as we can. We don't anticipate energy from death, but when we look at life, one of the key characteristics of life is energy. And what Paul is saying, I think, here is take the energy that you've got in your life and present that to the Lord. Put that at His disposal. God... The energy that you've given me to live, I want to use that to your glory. I want to be used of you. I want my energy, God, to walk, to talk, to speak, to engage people in conversation. Lord, I want to use that energy that you give me. I want you to energize me so that that energy can be used, Lord, to reach people for you. Do you realize how much we give our boredom to Jesus and our laziness to Jesus? Jesus? and are I'm just going to sort of be laid back, sit and watch life go by to Jesus. I mean, we come to church on a Sunday morning, and, and we sit in the pew, and our minds wonder we're giving our boredom to Jesus. When we just sort of sit back and watch God do stuff, we're, we're just sort of giving that laid-back disconnectedness to Jesus. A living sacrifice says, Lord, I want the energy in me to be connected to you so that it's being used for your glory. One of the reasons that we're trying to develop as many mission opportunities as we can and send teams out all over the place is a way for us to take our energy and use our energy for His glory. Let me share something with you. If you get in the will of God and you move with God in His will, the one thing you will not be is bored. There will be days that you will want to be bored. There will be times you will ask God, could He sort of slow things down and make things a little bored? But believe me, walking and working and moving with the will of God is not boring. It is exciting, it is challenging, it is intimidating sometimes, it is scary, but the one thing it isn't is boring. Living sacrifice. Now, how do I stay at that place of being a living sacrifice? Let me give you one word. Praise. Praise. If you will develop in your life a discipline of praising Him, not just on Sunday morning, what we just did in here in praise through song is a catalyst for what you do all week long. It's praising Him all the time. Disciplining yourself to praise Him, to bless His name. To use the book of Psalms, if you will, as your hymn uh, hymnal, your praise guide during the week. But to praise him and worship him. Let me say this to you. You see, the reason the devil wants to get us into a complaining spirit is because complaining and fussing and moaning and groaning, etc., gets us away from the Lord and gets us away from discerning his will. If you're living with an attitude of praise, he'll get you in touch with his presence and with His will. Praise is how we stay a living sacrifice. Now notice where he takes us next in this passage. He says, I want you to present your body as a living sacrifice. Verse 1, he says, holy. That means separated to the Lord. Now how do we present our bodies as holy to the Lord? I'm going to give you four ideas here. I want you to follow them with me and write them down. And folks, some of you need to listen to this carefully because God's going to give you some liberation as you do this. Number one, don't abuse your body. When we take substances into our bodies that harm us, we're abusing the body. Number two, hating and rejecting our bodies. Some of you, if you're really honest, when you look in the mirror, you hate what you see. Because it doesn't measure up to whatever standards you think it should measure up to. You're not you know, good-looking enough, or you're too overweight, or you're too skinny, or you do this, or you do that, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You think you're ugly, whatever happens to come along. So you just hate your body. And our culture teaches us, basically, to hate our bodies because our bodies don't measure up to whatever Hollywood says they're supposed to measure up to. You may have grown up in a home environment where your body was compared to somebody else's body, and because it didn't measure up, you learned to hate your body and despise your body. It's hard for me to present my body to the Lord if I hate it. Now, none of us had any choice in getting the body that you got, all right? The Lord did not give any of us an opportunity to vote on our bodies before we were born. That was the parents' issue. And we got the genetics, and we are stuck with them. So what do we do? We can either sit over here and be miserable and hate our bodies, or we can say, Lord, for whatever reasons, and reasons sometimes I don't understand, you've given me this body. I've shared with you our son, who is a 23, is dyslexic. We discovered he was dyslexic uh, when he was in elementary school. And that was a tough thing for us to come into to grips with because, you know, that, that was a learning disability for him. What we have learned in watching his life is how God has used the dyslexia to help him to connect with other people who have learning disabilities. And that has brought opportunities for him to minister to other people and to be used to the Lord, etc. And he just sat around and hated himself because he struggled with reading because he was dyslexic. He would never have found the will of God in that. So hating your body, the limitations of it, etc., doesn't get us there. Accept what God gave you. Number three, accept... What the Lord gave you in His idea of how He gave it to you. Not in how your body has been treated. This is what I mean by that. There may be some people listening to me that your body was abused at some point in your life. And the abuse that you endured taught you a lesson that your body was no good but to be used and abused and taken advantage of by somebody else. And that will cause you to despise yourself and to say, I have no value, because I've been treated like I have no value. And what I want to say to you this morning is the way a victimizer viewed your body is not how God views your body. You endured a lie. The truth is, your body is what God gave you and what God created you. And as someone said, God doesn't create junk. Your body is every bit as much the result of the creative genius and intelligence of God as anybody else. It's just that somebody chose not to recognize that. Learn to live in the liberating truth of what God says about you, not what an abuser by their action said about you. Now, the fourth is the exact opposite. And that is, we can't present our bodies to God if we're worshiping our bodies instead of Him. Now, there are some dear people who think that they are God's gift to creation... And when they step out the door every day, the world is just waiting to see them and experience them, and they got a buy that just blows everybody else's away. And if I'm looking in the mirror and worshiping what I'm seeing, then I can't present it to the Lord, because how can I worship God if I'm worshiping myself? And so what I've got to say at that point is, Lord, thank you for what you gave me. Thank you that it looks so great, but Jesus, this belongs to you to be used for your honor and for your glory he says acceptable to God verse 1 that which pleases the Lord now notice what he says next he says it's your spiritual act of worship did you catch that your spiritual act of worship when we talk about worship we usually talk about singing We don't talk about presenting our bodies to the Lord 24-7. You see, what we tend to focus on in worship is what I call the easy part of worship. It's a lot easier for me to sing than it is to take this and present it to Jesus seven days a week. But He's saying what I want you to do is take your body and as an act of worship present it to the Lord. Now, notice verse 2. He says, I want Jesus to transform your mind. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. J.B. Phillips, in translating this, says, and I love this, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. He says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed, that is, your mind changed to think after Jesus. Now, let me illustrate what he's talking about here in two ways. First off, some of you that I'm talking to, particularly if you are probably 30 years of age or younger, have an iPhone. And your iPhone has got some kind of gaming system on it or multiple gaming systems on it. And you probably hear from your parents all the time about I wish you would get off your phone and talk to us and listen to us. And I don't know why you stare into that screen all the time. And some of you parents are looking at me right now like, yeah, I say that to my kid all of the time. And some of you, it's even older than that because some of you that hear about getting off your phone because you're on your gaming system, you're hearing that from the person that you share holy matrimony with uh, that are doing that, all right? And I just went from uh, preaching into meddling, okay, and I won't go any farther. Your gaming system on that phone is determined by the gaming systems that you bought and put in there. The apps that you've got on there are the apps that you bought and put on there. When it says here, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, what he's saying is let Jesus put the gaming system into your life. Let Jesus decide the apps that he wants to put into your life. Now, let me use a farming illustration. Go back to that farm. When I went out in the field, where are my cousins? Those fields always had rows in them. I had to make sure I didn't just get in the right field. I had to make sure I got to the right row. Nine times out of ten, when I went out there, they gave me a hoe to work with. And they said, I want you to hoe in this part of the field beside your cousin on this row. When he says here, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, using a farming idea, he was trying to say is, make sure that you are hoeing on the same row that Jesus is. Make sure you are hoeing on the same row that Jesus is. Because if you're not... That's when we start getting away from him. Now let me tell you what happens when you hoe on the same row where Jesus is. When I get out there with my cousin, the first thing was I was in the right field on the right row doing the right thing. Second, my cousin that I was working with set the pace. So I was working at his pace. The reason some of us are burning out in life is we're working on somebody else's pace other than Jesus. If you work at Jesus' pace, He will not burn you out. When I got out there, I was working with the right crop at the right place. He gets you in the right place, doing the right thing to His glory. But let me tell you the, the best thing about being on the right row with Jesus is the fellowship and the friendship you have with Him. When I look back on those days, I really can't even remember the crops we were working, but I do remember having a lot of fun hanging out with my cousins and my aunt, my uncle, and particularly my grandmother. I can still remember being back one night with a cousin and a grandmother planting tomato plants. And what I remember about that was just the fun we had, laughing and talking. I don't know if y'all ever had, those of you who have a farming background can remember this or not, but when you come in from a long day and you've had fun out there working in it, I don't care how hot it's been or how tough it's been, what just sort of took the top off of all of it was just hanging out with your relatives and having fun with them. And when I hear people that grew up in that context, they talk about all the fun they used to have together. And what Jesus is trying to say to us here when he says, be transformed. He's saying, hang out with me on my road. We're going to do this together. We're going to make memories together. We're going to enjoy this together. It's about being with Jesus. Now, how does that happen to us? The Holy Spirit of God and the Word of God. I'm going to give you some practical applications here. Number one, get a verse of Scripture and hang out in that verse meditate on it, run it over in your mind, discuss it with other people, do it all day, do it for a full week, etc. But find a verse and live in that verse, saturate your mind in that verse, let that verse just come all over you and stay in it. Wallow in it like an old pig likes to wallow in a mud pond. Just get in that word and stay in that word and let it saturate your mind, let it saturate your heart, and in so doing you're going to get on the same road with Jesus. Take the Word of God and discuss it with other believers. Their insight, your insight, y'all together, praying over it, going through it together. And then live out the obedience. And folks, I can't stress that enough. If you want to go through a transformation process, when God tells you to do something, you've got to do it. We just sit about and say, I'm going to just pray about it. I'm going to talk about it. I'm going to think about it, but I'm not going to do it. The transformation is never going to happen. The transformation happens when we step out in obedience. Some of you uh, in here will know the name of Margie Altice. When I was pastor of Red Lane Baptist Church in Palatine County, Margie was a member of our church. Margie in those years was a senior adult. She's in our probably mid to late 60s. And we announced that we were going to Norfolk to do what we call today shrimp. In those days, we called it the Norfolk Mission Trip. And Margie volunteered to go to Norfolk with our team. And she volunteered to wash the sweaty T-shirts of our team every night. So as the team would come in from being out there in the heat all day long doing Bible schools, she would take those dirty, sweaty T-shirts and wash them. And i never forget, Margie came to me and she said, Pastor, she said, I'm a senior adult and I thought God was through with me. And I discovered when I went on this mission trip, he was not through with me. He still had something for me to do. You see, Margie took the step of obedience. And where a lot of us are waiting right now and discerning God's will is we won't step out in obedience. You've got to take that step. It may seem scary. It may seem overwhelming. He's going to take you to some places you've never been, but you've got to take that step. Now, let me address one final issue, and that's the issue of change. What do you and I do when we discern the will of God, and discerning means that God's going to use you in a different way that He's been using you or in a different place that He's been using you or in a different way or with an intensity or can take all kinds of forms. What do you and I do? Well, a whole lot of us get attitude. Let's be honest. I've been serving the Lord in this place, in this way for so long, and I'm just going to get mad if they don't let me serve the Lord in the same place, in the same way. We, We get all kinds of attitude about it. I don't like change. How many of us have said that? I don't like change. I can't deal with change. We get mad with the people that are making change happen. We get mad with God because of the change. can't stand change. But the will of God from time to time, is going to mean change. So what do we do when the change comes? Don't get an attitude. When we get an attitude, we quench the work of the Holy Spirit, and all we end up being is some grouchy prude that nobody wants to be around, okay? So don't do that. Beg of you don't do that. Plus, you're a whole lot easier to pastor when you don't do that, all right? (laughs) This is what we have to question we have to ask the Lord. Lord, what are you doing? And how can I join you in it? What are you doing and how can I join you in it? What are you up to? And how can I be a part of it? Not, Lord, I got to keep being used in the same way or I'm just going to have a meltdown. But Jesus, if you're doing something different, if you're mixing it up, then you got the right to do that. And I want to enjoy you in that. Now, let's be honest. The main reason we hate change is because we feel so inadequate when we see the change. It creates all kinds of fear in us. Live in this verse. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can step into this new place in life because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can step away from whatever God's calling me to step away from, because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can step into this new place in this new way with these new people in this new ministry area, because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can transition in life even though I don't want to, Because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Let's pray. Lord, teach us the truth, not just intellectually, but through experience, that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. And Lord, in discerning your will, we need to present our bodies to you. In discerning your will, we need to ask you to help us not allow the world to squeeze us into its mold, but that we will be transformed by the renewing of our minds. To get on the same Row that you're on, that you you plug your gaming system into the screen of our life. Lord, I pray for every person who's here today that you are speaking to them, and because of fear, because of inadequacy, they don't want to take that step, or they've had to take a step they didn't want to take in life, and miserable because of it. And to say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, if you're here today and you need to give your life to Jesus and choose to follow Him and serve Him and walk with Him, then I want to invite you as we sing in just a moment to walk the aisle of this church and say, Pastor, today I want to follow Jesus. I want to serve Him. I want to belong to Him. Every person that Jesus called, He called publicly. So we invite you to come. If you're here and you sense that God is saying, I want you to become part of this church body, And serve me in this place with these people, as the field from which I will place you at this time in your life. And I invite you to come. If you need to come and pray, have someone pray with you. The altar is open. We invite you to come. And if God's calling you into the ministry, you sense that He's saying, "I I want you to be a missionary." I want you to serve me in some capacity in ministry, that I invite you to come and indicate that so that this church can pray with you and encourage you. Lord, in these moments now of response to you, help us to be obedient. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.